Welcome to episode 277 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Catherine and Amelia. They used the donation button on our website. Thank you, Catherine and Amelia, for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes, and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Before we begin, we would like to state that though we at The Recovery Show may be in a 12-step program, we represent ourselves rather than the program. During this show, we will share our own experiences. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Spencer, and I'm your host today. So I got an email recently from Ken. He writes, Hi, Spencer. I was listening to your episode 239 on your March Roundup 2018 experience and your sharing about the early AA Escapades presentation jogged a memory of a wonderful speaker tape that I've listened to several times. It is of Dr. Bob's son, Bob Jr., in 2003, speaking at an Al-Anon convention. He talks about his own Al-Anon recovery as well as fascinating insights into the early days of AA as only a first-hand eyewitness could tell. It is an uplifting talk. Thanks for your service, Ken. And so I listened to that, and I was like, yeah, this is something that uh, I would like to share with you. And so here it is. I had the privilege and honor to meet our speaker today at the airport and um, have lunch with him and have some good conversation and share some jokes and stories and just had had a wonderful time this morning. And um, what I can say about Bob is that from what I hear... Um, and what I've seen in his life so far, he is proof that this program works and uh, is a real good Al-Anon. So with that, I give you our speaker, Bob S. I thought I'd charge Charlie's battery up a little, <laughs> the taper. <clears throat> I want to thank it for all the people who made it possible for me to be here. You've been so good to me, and I just had a wonderful time. You know, I was supposed to be here last year and caught pneumonia in Vancouver, B.C. and couldn't make it. So I'm here now, and I'm so glad Fran and Rick have taken such good care of me. Tom's been my host. and. I don't know who picked the speakers, but I'll tell you, you picked a bunch of dandies. This, you are in for a treat. What people, some of them are, they're friends of mine and I happen to have been on programs with them. So, uh, hang in there for the whole thing. It's going to be wonderful. My name is Bob S and I'm an enthusiastic member of Al Nun. <laughs> I started this journey with you in April of 79. And I got into Al-Anon, not because of my parents, but because of my wife. My wife, Betty, who died five years ago, was a, a recovering alcoholic, 19 years sober when she died. And she came into AA, and then I came into Al-Anon, and that's how I got here. 
I think that there's some things that I must do to be an Al-Anon. I don't think you're automatically an Al-Anon. I think you have to do some work on your part. (laughs) I think I need to live the steps. I think I need to abide by the tradition. I think I need to attend meetings regularly, and I think I need to have a sponsor, and I do those things. When I came in 44 years ago, the only guy, Al-Anon, was about the age of my son, and I didn't think we had too much going. So I selected a lady even older than I, and she's been my service sponsor ever since. Now, I know we do not encourage sponsors of the opposite sex. But you can tell by looking at me, it's not a very serious problem. <laughs> now, don't, don't misunderstand me, please. I love to see you beautiful ladies. I just can't remember why. <laughs> I hope we have a happy time together. You know, these are happy programs. And... Uh, Oh, my sponsor goaded me into service. You know, service is part one part of our triangle. And I've been the GR and the DR. And I served three years with the West Texas Assembly. And several years ago, I got a call from our central office asking me if I would consider myself to be a trustee, candidate for trustee at large for all of Al-Anon. And I seemed to have the educational qualifications for which they searched. And I prayed about it and talked to my group about it and called them back and said, yeah, please, put my name down. I'd love to be a candidate for trustee at large for all of Al-Anon. And guess what? I didn't get it. (laughs) (laughs) Hell, don't we hate rejection? But the point I want to make is my program came in, kicked in, and said, hey, Whoever got that job was the one that they really needed, capable of doing a much better job than you. And maybe our Heavenly Father has something else for me to do. And I'm totally free of that. Totally free of that. And that's part of our acceptance that we learn in our program. Beautiful acceptance. Although I have only been a member of Alan 24 years, I am somewhat of a an anachronism. I'm the only person still living that was president when the co-founders of Alcoholics Anonymous met for the very first time, Mother's Day, Akron, Ohio. My dad, Dr. Bob, and my mom's Ann. I rode out with my parents to meet with Bill at the home of Henrietta Cyberling. And as a result of that meeting, and at my mom's invitation, Bill came and he lived at our house all that summer. Now I'm the only one left standing, and it's kind of scary, you know, Bill's gone, Lois is gone, my dad's gone, mom's gone, my beautiful beloved sister Sue died over a year ago. So I'm the only one left. And to show you I'm not completely well, the thought has occurred to me, nobody can say, now Bob, that's not the way it happened. I even thought I might adjust history a little bit. (laughs) No, I'm not going to do it. But Anyway, I'd like to take you back with me in my memory of those days and uh, when AA was started. And I'm so glad 
<clears throat> Somebody mentioned my mom. I'm going to talk about my mom tonight, too. My dad, Dr. Bob, was a graduate of Dartmouth, one of the fine Ivy League colleges back in the East. And he worked out in industry about three years and then went back and, uh, to medical school, got broke, uh, kicked out of the first one, made the second one, moved to Akron, Ohio, and married my mom after a whirlwind courtship of only 17 years. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Bob thought things over very carefully. <laughs> Last week I was in Dartmouth. They are celebrating their most illustrious alum, which I think is great because he sure as heck wasn't their most illustrious alum when he was going to school. <laughs> but uh, they are dedicating some things to him, and I'm just delighted over that. Dr. Bob was a <clears throat> tall, thin Vermonter. Icy blue eyes that kind of could look right through you. His pictures, he looked so grim, but he wasn't that way at all. He was a happy guy and fun to be around. And when I brought my bride to be home for the folks to look over in the 1940s, my wife was tall and slender, and uh, he looked her over and got me aside and said, she's built for speed and light housekeeping. <laughs> Excuse me, a section hygiene lecture to me as a teenager. Got me up in the bathroom one day and closed the door. And I thought, oh, I'm going to find out all about it now. <laughs> he said to me, flies spread disease. Keep yours buttoned. <laughs> <laughs> he was the best sport and just fun to be around. He wanted to go back to his beloved Vermont one time, and he had some sort of an old car that was in the Depression that didn't run very well and used a lot of gasoline. And I had bought a Ford Roadster for less than $30. And the reason I got it for less than 30 bucks is I didn't get the top with it. <laughs> and he said, do you think that old Ford will run to Vermont and then up into Canada? And I said, yeah, I think so, Dad. It runs great. I said, but what are we going to do when it rains? He said, we're going to get wet. <laughs> and a high school friend of mine and dad toured all through New England, that old Ford, just had a wonderful time. You know, Bill was also a tall, thin Vermonter. Born within 100 miles of each other, my dad is St. Johnsbury and Bill at East Dorset. And uh, total opposite. Absolutely total opposites. Bill was garrulous. Bill loved to talk. Bill was a visitor. When Bill came to conduct a meeting, you were going to be there a while. And uh, Bill was a visionary. I think Bill Wilson could see further up the road than any human I've ever known. But Bill's mood swung. He was either high as a Georgia pine or low as a snake. He never really leveled off. My dad pretty well run along on an even keel. And these two guys fit together perfectly. And again, I think perhaps it was providentially arranged. Never had an argument. And even though they're total opposites, I think that was necessary. Two kids, you know, folks, if any two of us are exactly alike, one of us is unnecessary. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
I rode out with my dad and mom, and uh, my dad had terrible hangovers. Uh, and he said as we went along, okay, 15 minutes of this bird is all I want. But, folks, it wasn't 15 minutes. He and Bill went off in a room by themselves, and they talked for many hours. And as a result of that meeting, and at my mom's invitation, Bill came and he lived at our house all that summer. And this is a time and place that Alcoholics Anonymous was formulated. I love your theme, miracles. These programs are just, I can talk to you about miracles almost indefinitely. All the wonderful things that have happened, even at the very start. You know, when Roland Hazard went and talked to Carl Jung, and we've read about that. Do you know Carl Jung was the only one of the three famous psychiatrists that believed in God? The other two were sworn atheists. If he'd have gone to one of the other two, that idea about a spiritual awakening never had, would have been broached. And that's the very first. And, and another one, of course, was mom didn't say, come over, Bill, and have soup with us. She said, come live with us. <laughs> now, this is Bill lived in New York, and we lived in Akron, Ohio. You know, never had seen a guy before. <laughs> and uh, I'll tell you another miracle. Bill said, okay. So he moved in. My mom wrote to Lois, Bill's wife, our beloved uh, Al-Anon co-founder. And Lois came and stayed with us as long as she could. Remember, this is the Depression. Lois was the only one that had a job. <laughs> and she had to get back to New York and get to work. <clears throat> what did these two guys have going for them? The only thing I could think of, they both had open spiritual minds and they had the desire to be of service to another human being. And the first one I remember was a young guy by the name of Eddie. Eddie had just been thrown out of his house for non-payment of rent, along with a cute little blonde wife and two stair-step kids. Well, they moved the whole family into our house. We still had a house, just barely. Took Eddie upstairs and locked him in the upstairs where he'd be available as they got this knowledge. And <laughs> Hey, you got to remember, nothing's written. They're just trying to stay a page ahead of Eddie. <laughs> but Eddie was an agile young guy, and we had downspouts. And Eddie would open the second-story window, slide down the downspouts, and escape. And they had to postpone Eddie's recovery long enough to recapture him. <laughs> Can you imagine a more inauspicious start to a wonderful movement? One time, Eddie got as far away as Cleveland, Ohio, called him up on the phone, collect, to let them know that he was going to commit suicide, but that he would give them time to drive up and witness the event. <laughs> well, they brought Eddie back one more time, but when Eddie sobered up, he had some mental problems that hadn't surfaced, and he began beating up on this little lady to whom he was married. And then he began chasing my mom around the house with a butcher knife. So we held a group conscience meeting. <laughs> and, you know, it was decided the only thing to do with Eddie was for his little wife to take him back to Ann Arbor, Michigan, and recommit him in a mental institution. And this was done, and Bill and Dad were crestfallen. Here's their first attempt to sober up another alcoholic. Total failure. 
But I want to tell you folks something. At my dad's funeral 15 years later, a guy walked up to me, and he said, Did you know me? Do you know me? And I looked at him, and I said, Yeah, you're Eddie. And he said, That's right. And he said, I want you to know I'm a member of the Youngstown, Ohio AA group, and I've been sober one year. So we don't know the result of that 12-step call. Our problem is to take that hand that reaches out for help. That's our part of it. I think the results depend upon perhaps the interest of the person receiving the message and the will of our Heavenly Father. But our part is to take that hand that reaches out for help. I want to talk to you today about starting from nothing because AA certainly did start from nothing. No money. These two guys couldn't raise 50 bucks between them. And I want to talk to you about miracles. And I want to talk to you about recovery. I'm, uh, I'm not going into what it used to be like. I don't know. I'm, I'm going on the basic premise that everyone here already knows how to be miserable. <laughs> okay. I love to hear people talk about recovery. Of course, the man on the bed, as you saw, that was uh, Ernie G. <coughs> I mean, Bill Dawson. And, uh, you know, Bill's story is not in the first edition of the big book. Do you know why? We're not all completely well. Bill, Bill wanted to get paid for it, and they wouldn't pay him. <laughs> it's in the later editions, but it's not in the first edition. But anyhow, Bill was the first uh, success that these two had, and uh, Bill never took another drink. Bill was a southern attorney, uh, uh, and of course their first convert. It just went along as just a sort of a trickle. And we began taking alcoholics into our home because nobody had any money. Hospital beds were very expensive, a double is like $16 a day. I think they're up a little now, but... Uh, <laughs> Nobody had any money, so we began taking them into our home, and my sister and I were teenagers. So now we'd been living first 17 years of our lives with active alcoholism. Were any of you here like me raised in an alcoholic home? Raise your arms, will you? Oh, wow. Let me touch on that just a minute. I think we arrive at adulthood with some scars. I don't doubt that. But I think that through the learning that I've got from the program, that there are some things I must guard against. I think I must totally avoid the victim mindset. You know, all my screw-ups, all the bad things I did, all the things I was supposed to do and didn't do, they weren't my fault, you see, because I'm a victim of somebody else's alcoholism. Well, that works. That works. But to keep that victim mindset going, there's one thing that I would have to do. I have to continually and increasingly resent somebody, some group, some action, some place. And we all know in our program the one thing that will totally destroy us is resentment. So I like to think of myself as a survivor, not a victim, but as a survivor. Well, we get, when we got into recovery, oh, this was fun. 
Can you imagine two teenagers around a house full of live drunks? Boy, it was, <laughs> it was peppy. <laughs> we never knew what was going to happen. <laughs> Dad and Bill had devised a treatment, standard treatment. Dad would take a new guy upstairs in the house and say, okay, fella, I'm going to give you a little shot of whiskey, but I want you to take this medicine. And it was peraldehyde. <laughs> I can tell some of you smelt peraldehyde. Very pungent sedative. He knocked them out from 24 to 36 hours. <laughs> and when the guy came down, they had the, the food diet to settle the nerves and get the mind going again. And it was standard. Canned tomatoes, sauerkraut. Yeah, Bill had an ulcer, and he thought sauerkraut cured everything. <laughs> and Cairo syrup. <laughs> I think you'll agree the early alcoholics were a hardy group. <laughs> Remember that my mom was the one that invited Bill to live with us. Mom was the one who was making the beds. Mom was the one that's cleaning up the messes. Mom's the one that was cooking the food. Mom's the one that's on the telephone answering the inquiries and sending these new guys out. I want to tell you about Mom because nobody knows much about her, and maybe she wanted it that way. But Mom was a graduate of Wellesley, one of the fine women's colleges back in the East, and she went there on a scholarship. And her great-uncle was the president of the Santa Fe Railroad, and in those days, the president of the railroad had his own opulent rail car. could tie on the trains wherever trains went. And he liked my mother and would take her with him on some of these. So she got to see the gentil, opulent side of life. And mom was a school teacher and led a very sheltered and protected life and was very easily shocked until AA. <laughs> <laughs> now, mom's the one that's enduring the snubs. You know, A wasn't an instant success. It was thought as a cult and a bunch of nuts. And uh, we weren't at all popular with the neighbors. Uh, <laughs> if you want to get a feel for that, start a halfway house in your home. <laughs> we even got kicked out of the Presbyterian Church on account of AA. And I never heard of anyone getting kicked out of the Presbyterian Church, but we were. <laughs> So this poor lady endured all of that, and I love to tell her about her. Mom took up smoking when she was 50. <laughs> I said, Mom, you're not going to start smoking now, are you? And she said, I'll tell you what, if you wait till you're 50, I won't say anything. <laughs> well, as an economy measure, remember times were tough, we didn't have any money. Mom decided to buy a Target machine and make your own cigarettes. I don't know if any of you have ever seen one, but it's a little metal deal. You put the paper in, sprinkle the tobacco, took the lever, rolled it over and back, and you had a cigarette. Well, Susie, my sister, and I thought this was a little beneath our dignity, so we volunteered to make her some. But instead of tobacco, we used shavings out of the pencil sharpener. <laughs> Well, when she lit the first one, of course, the fire didn't go out. <laughs> and after a while, she said, you know, these aren't nearly as good as those lucky strikes. <laughs> 
Mom insisted that everyone that stay there have a quiet time, that they might feel near to God. Mom also started a woman's group in 1936 for the wives of alcoholics, whereby in her loving way she tried to teach them patience, love, and tolerance. So mom realized from the word go that this was an illness that affected not only the alcoholic, but those close to him. And you know, when uh, Lois, Bill's wife, our beloved co-founder, decided in 1950 to see if there was a interest in an organization like Al-Anon, she wrote to all the known AA groups around the country to see if anybody was interested. And to her surprise, she found out there were 64 groups already doing it. Independent thinking. They decided that it was something, and they were doing it their way. So it's always been an illness that affected the the whole family. Mom always sat in the back of the room. All the earlier meetings were open meetings. And she sat in the back of the room, and she greeted everybody that came in. And always wore the same old black dress. It was the only decent dress she had for years. And when Dad got back on his feet financially, Mom got three brand-new dresses. And somebody said, Ann, you're going to wear a new dress to the meeting tonight? And she said, oh, no, I'm going to wear the old black dress. There'll be somebody come through those doors that can't afford a new dress. And that was my mom. Well, Mom died in 1949. I attended the first international in 1950. My dad was terminally ill. This is the one where they adopted the 12 traditions of AA. Six guys got up and they each read two of the traditions. And this is, the longer I'm around these programs, the more I realize this is the glue that holds us together, folks, these 12 traditions. And if you stop and analyze them, they're a beautiful, beautiful, miraculous example of damage control. They're, yeah, anticipating all the things that might destroy the movement. Damage control. Miraculous. How about this one? We're self-supporting through our own contribution. In the early days, the liquor industry wanted to give AA big money. Yeah, because as a PR, some and though they were terribly broke, they resisted that. Because, you see, there would have been some strings tied onto that. There would have been some strings, and the way it is now, we're totally free of strings. We're self-supporting to our own contribution. Another one of those beautiful little miracles. Well, Betty and I drove Dad back to Vermont for one more time. So it's home, and I wouldn't take for the caring and sharing that we did as we rode along the highway and sitting on the side of the bed at night, and I... Uh, brought him back to Akron, Ohio. And I had a flying job out of Dallas at the time. That's how I met Creighton. And uh, I never saw my dad alive again. We were uh, we were living our own life there in Texas. And, uh, but I wouldn't take for that time we had. Then Bill invited um, Betty and I to come to the Second International in 1955 in St. Louis. And this is the one where Bill turned AA over to the AAs. And this is another very, very important milestone. If you've studied the history of the group and other attempts to sober up people, 
two things usually happen. They didn't have any structure. We have structure. We've got the 12 steps. We've got the 12 traditions. We've got the 12 concepts. And another thing that happened in these earlier attempts, either the guy that started it either died or moved away and the meeting stopped. Well, in this 1955, Bill turned AA over to the AAs with provision that there was a central office that could continue running it after they were gone because they realized these founders were mortal. That is another beautiful miracle. And I think that's one of the things that kept it going 68 years. My wife and I were party animals. We loved to dance and we loved to drink. And I wasn't telling anybody my father was Dr. Bob Smith. (laughs) But occasionally they'd find out about it and invite us to a meeting. And we would go and have a good time. And on the way home we'd say, oh, good for them. They needed that. And all the while, alcoholism was working in our family. Betty had poured her dad out into a drying out place in Denver in 1944, and he and another guy started AA in New Mexico. So if there was ever two human beings that should have recognized alcoholism, it was Betty and me. But we didn't. You see, we were different. Do any of you ever think you were different? (laughs) And we didn't just jump right into AA. You know, our alcoholism bus was three sections. Fun, fun and problems, problems. And we were well into the problem part. And we didn't say, oh, boy, this is going to be, we'll realize the goal of a lifetime. Betty, you're going to join AA, and I'm going to join (laughs) Al-Anon. We didn't have any such an idea as that. We kept trying to change it up a little bit and uh, make it work. And let me tell you a little story I love to tell about two hunters that love to hunt way up in the wilds of Alaska. And they would hire an aviation company to fly them into a lake and leave them and then pick them up a week later. And the plane came in, landed on the lake, and, and one of the hunters said, Oh, we're glad to see you. We've had a wonderful hunt. we got three moose. And the pilot said, you two guys, me and three moose in this little airplane? I don't think so. And one of the hunters said, no, I don't think anything about it. So a guy came in with a plane just exactly like yours last year. And we had three moose. And what he did was he taxied up the river and got a longer takeoff run across the lake. We didn't have any trouble getting in the air. So the pilot thought, well, I'm new with the company. I guess i got to try this. And so he did. And sure enough. Takes off and they start back to civilization. Well, the little engine is working so hard that it begins to overheat and loses power and then way out in the middle of nowhere it crashes. Well, one of the hunters pulls his buddy up from under the plane and his buddy looked around and said, Oh my gosh, where in the world are we? The other said, You know, I think we're within a hundred yards of where we crashed last year. <laughs> And that was us trying the same thing over and over, (laughs) expecting a different result. 
When it got bad enough, Betty took off with her AA program. She quit cold turkey, hanging on by her fingernails. She said, I don't recommend you do it that way, but I'll tell you one thing, you won't forget it. (laughs) And she was running off and leaving me. She was working her program to the best of ability and leaving me in the dust. And I thought, I believe I'd like some of that too. So someone said, well, Bob, why don't you go to Al-Anon? And I thought, oh, I don't mind joining the auxiliary. (laughs) So I got my car and I drove 40 miles over to east to Gainesville, Texas, my first Al-Anon meeting. And I walk in there and uh, I look around. It's a room full of women. I'm the only guy. Well, I got mixed emotions about Al-Anon immediately. I like to describe mixed emotions this way. It's kind of like the feeling you have when your teenage daughter comes in at four in the morning with a Gideon Bible on her arm. But anyway, I stayed, and I bless those ladies. That's still my home group. And they stayed with me until I finally developed a little program myself. Oh, where do you suppose they got these ideas? Have you ever thought about this? Another little miracle. Bill in New York City and my dad and mom in Akron, Ohio, had belonged to an organization called the Oxford Group. Now, this is before they'd even met, but they both had belonged to this particular organization, and it was <clears throat> the Oxford Group was started by a Lutheran minister from Pennsylvania by the name of Frank Buckman, and the basic principles of it were back to first century spirituality. They had meetings. They shared with each other. They moved to other people's meetings, joined other people's meetings, they had many, many things that were incorporated in our program. They had the four absolutes, as you saw, absolute honesty, absolute unselfishness, absolute purity of thought, and absolute love that were woven into our program. They had a form of a fifth step. They would take a new guy upstairs in one of the bedrooms of T. Williams house, Henry's house and bore in on him till he admitted what his problem was. <laughs> <laughs> and so... Uh, We owe those people a tremendous debt of gratitude, but it was also inevitable that we part. You see, the Oxford group catered to the upper middle class, and the early alcoholics were not upper middle class. (laughs) The Oxford group wanted publicity, and the alcoholics already had all the publicity they wanted. (laughs) (laughs) And the alcoholics, the alcoholics, <clears throat> Oxford Group also had this form of a fist step, which is open confession and not acceptable to people of the Catholic faith. And I don't know if you folks realize it, but there are Catholics that drink too much. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, it was inevitable that we separate. But we owe those people a tremendous debt of gratitude. Then God has his own big book. And there were certain parts of God's big book, the Holy Bible, that were used. The 13th Corinthian, the Sermon on the Mount, and as you all know, the book of James, which is faith without works 
is dead. And these are the things that have been woven in to make our program. And folks, these are spiritual programs. It's not a spiritual part. They're holy, holy, entirely spiritual. And if you don't have the spirituality of the program, I don't think you've got a program. These were entirely spiritual. But anyhow, our Heavenly Father somehow saw to it that the thing was put together and lasted. And the miracles. Uh, let me talk to you about a couple of money. Bill and Dad were broke, and they thought, oh, boy, wouldn't it be great if we had some money for this wonderful movement? They're human beings, you know. So they went to New York City. As you saw in the film, Mr. Rockefeller's group listened very, very carefully and said, no, (laughs) money will ruin it. Now, think what would have happened in your mind's eye if Mr. Rockefeller and his group had dumped a million bucks on a 100 broke alcoholics. (laughs) I bet we wouldn't be sitting there tonight. <laughs> They'd be still fighting over it. Anonymity. In the early days of Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon, there were people with huge egos. <laughs> now, I know we don't have any of that anymore. But the beauty is, nobody, you can't be Mr. A or Mrs. Alanon if nobody knows what your name is. And another thing that has done, folks, it doesn't make any difference if you've been here 40 days or 40 years. We are all exactly the same. And isn't that the way it should be? Miracle. God, as we understood him, was incorporated into the steps. I think as a result of some of my mom infusion of her spiritual notebook and that was Dr. Sam Shoemaker's his too but what that one little phrase has done folks that has allowed these movements to be acceptable all over the world people who have an entirely different concept of higher power perhaps you and me perfectly acceptable just those words God as we understood him and that's a miracle the big book of AA you know, when it first came out, they couldn't give it away. It, it was in a bonded warehouse, and the guy that ran the warehouse wouldn't let anybody, any books out until they had the cash. So they maybe they'd get 25 and go sell them and then come back and get 35. And it was just, nobody bought the thing. It was just a drug on the market. And now I understand it's the second bestseller of all time. I don't know how it is here. But you can't even buy one at a bookstore in Texas. Isn't that America? And the first 164 pages are exactly the same as they were when they were first written, except for one word. You know, Bill had had a spiritual experience. It had come on him as a light. And most of us don't get it that way. Most of us, we have to work at it. So they changed that one word from having had a spiritual experience to having had a spiritual what? Awakening, and that's the change. And think of the millions and millions of alcoholics that have tried to find a loophole in those first 164 pages. <laughs> Miracle. Oh, the program, you know, personally in my program, so many beautiful benefits. 
God. I was raised in the Episcopalian Church. That's Catholic light. (laughs) You know, all the pageantry without the guilt. Yeah. (laughs) And God was used to improve my conduct. You know, he was up there circling around, and if I screwed up, he was going to zap me. Well, that wasn't a very adult thing when I grew up. So I discarded that. I was a bomber pilot in World War II. I f- flew 45 missions out of Africa, an old four-engine liberator. Yeah. And my whole crew was killed. We carried a 10-man crew, and I was the flight leader of the lead flight, and the squadron commander called me in one day and said, "Uh, Bob, one of your pilots is having trouble. Ride with him. See if you can help him. I'll take your crew out tonight. And he took my crew out, and they were jumped by five JU-88s, and they never came back. I'm the only survivor of that crew. Well, I, I really wanted to live. And I had what I call a 911 relationship with God. I made deals with God. Did any of you ever try to do that? Oh, God, if you get me out of this, I swear. You know, can you imagine all the arrogance making a deal with God? Well, that doesn't work either. And now I have in my life a loving God. We're all God's kids. He's my heavenly father. I thank him every night. I pray to him every day. I talk to him just like I can talk to you. As I drive down the high, God, did you see that SOB cut us off? (laughs) (laughs) What a beautiful, beautiful relationship. Miracle. Honesty. I always thought I was honest. Cash register honest. You know, a girl give me too much change. I'd say, oh, here, you gave me a quarter too much. And I just feel blissfully honest all day long. Then I, there's, there's another a stage of honesty, and that's what I call resume honesty. That's when you basically tell the truth, but you gussy it up so people will like you or they'll hire you. Now in our program, there is rigorous honesty. And when I can show you me, warts and all, and you do the same for me, we can have an instant, intimate friendship. And I know of no other programs in the world that you can do that. And what that does for me, and I assume for you, it dispels loneliness. Miracle. Freedom. You know, I think when we get here, we have a freedom. Do any of you remember that old country and western song, me and Bobby McGee? You know, freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. And nothing ain't worth nothing, but it's free. That's kind of where we are here. Then when we work our program, I think we get to the turning point. And we have another, for the first time, we are free. We are free to make choices. We can make good choices, we can make bad choices, but if we can make choices, and that's a beautiful freedom. And my sponsor has told me about another one that I've been working on, and every morning I get up and I say, okay, God, you're the in-house manager. You're running it. I'll do the legwork. You do whatever 
needs to be done and tell me what you want me to do. And that's another level of freedom, another beautiful plus in a program. Well, it was going along beautifully well. My wife was attending AA and I was attending Al-Anon and we got a phone call. Our oldest son, Scott, who had a master's degree cum laude from the University of Texas, was a member of Mensa, didn't have a problem with drugs or booze, went to work there in Dallas. He was the top BMW salesman in Dallas. Something happened, went out in his car and sat down, took his gun, blew his brains out. Terrible. Just a terrible shock to us. No parent wants to outlive their children. But the point I want to make is that the program and the people in it took us in hand and propped us up until we could stand alone. Six months later, my beautiful wife, Betty, came down with terminal cancer and passed away. And again, the group and the people in it took me in their arms and propped me up until I was able to stand alone again. And I tell you this because some of these things will happen to you. May have already, but if you live long enough, this is life on life's terms, folks. But this is another plus, a beautiful plus of our programs. My God does not slam one door, but what he opens another one. And I got to tell you about this. I found another lady. <laughs> She's old. She's programmed. She's been the Al-Anon delegate from Mississippi, and she's 26 years sober in AA. And we've been married seven months. (laughs) When we went down to get the license, the clerk was waiting on the young couple, and she looked it up and said, said, well, you two are old enough to know better than this. <laughs> but anyway, we're starting a beautiful life together. And again, my God has been so gracious and so generous. And I know he will for you. Your miracles, if you haven't had them yet, they're coming. Just hang in there with us. Work your program to the best of ability. And don't you quit before your miracle. Thank you very, very much. After a short break, we will continue with our lives in recovery, where we talk about how recovery works in our daily lives. First musical selection was suggested by Lindsay, who wrote, Hi, Spencer. I'm a new listener to your show and new to Al-Anon. The first episode I listened to was 272, Peace in the Darkness. It was a little miracle and exactly what I needed at the time. It gave me a new perspective on being home alone for the first time. I really like the song recommendations in the podcast, and I have one which seems relevant to someone new to Al-Anon. The song is Rule the World by Michael Kiwanuka. Thanks, Lindsay. And I picked some lyrics here that maybe this is what she was thinking of. It certainly speaks to me of sort of the experience coming into Al-Anon, the way that I felt about my role, I guess, in the world at the time, and how that sort of wasn't working for me anymore. Do I have to rule the world, or will it come to me? Do I have to live in down, or will it turn to me? 
Do I have to lose my mind? Because it's been wandering. Will they ever let me out? I've been wondering. Help me to see who I can be. Help me to know where I can go. In this section of the podcast, we talk about our lives in recovery, what's happening in our meetings and our lives this week. So I was thinking back over the week, I normally go to a meeting on Saturday morning, but this Saturday I had a retreat at the church that I attend and where I am one of the leaders slash teachers for our seventh grade class. We talked about a number of things, but there was a there was a large section where we talked about spiritual practice and how do we lead our youth into finding spiritual practices that work for them. And by the way, what the heck is a spiritual practice and what is spirituality? These are questions that I think many of us in coming into 12-step and coming into Al-Anon in particular, I guess, might face. Many people in today's world don't really think about that. Um, I'm sure you've heard the expression, well, I'm not religious, but I am spiritual. Many of my friends in Al-Anon really have to explore this whole question of what does spiritual mean? What does spirituality mean? And so coming to this question from the perspective of, well, how would I explain this? How would I guide a 12-year-old, 13-year-old in this practice? And the church that I attend does not have a particular creed, does not have a specified set of beliefs. We instead believe that everybody needs to find what is meaningful for them, what their understanding of divine or the universe or God is. And so it's particularly difficult to think about, well, how do I pass this on to young people? There was some really interesting discussion around that. We, we did, okay, so there's this technique called a snowball, snowball fight, I guess. Uh, we were given a sheet of paper that had three questions and we were to write our response to the first question, which was, what does spirituality mean to me? And then crumpled up the, the paper and throw it in the middle of the room. And then everybody went and picked one up, not their own. If they got their own, they're supposed to throw it back and pick a different one. And then the second question was basically, do you agree with the first, the answer to the first question? Why or why not? And then, you know, crumple it up, throw it in the middle and pull it back. And then the third question was given the answer to the first two questions. How would you, you know, what does this mean for teaching our children and youth about spirituality, spiritual practices, something like that. I don't remember the exact question. There was a lot of diversity in the room. There were only 10 of us or something. There was a lot of diversity, which is, you know, one of the reasons that I like the place I go. It made me think, you know, and one of the things that we talked about also was what were some times that we have experienced in our, in our classes that were particularly meaningful, particularly spiritual. That gave me time to reflect back over some of the experiences that I've had over the last decade, really, that I've been working with youth in my faith community. And the things that I found meaningful, and I found that I and at least one of my fellow teachers in the seventh grade agreed that the most important thing for us is not whatever curriculum topics we might have for the day, but that the youth make a connection with each other, with us, with something bigger than themselves, that we we explore a little bit deeper than the externalities of what might have happened in their lives, what might be happening in their lives. That's, that's what we're really there for, we think. 
which was, it was good to, to learn that uh, because I, I really didn't know that that was the way this person felt and that it, it, it so closely aligned with, with what I feel. So that was good. Sunday went to my Sunday night Al-Anon meeting. We read from one day at a time in Al-Anon. The reading for January 27th is, is about finding compassion for the person suffering from alcoholism and about not wallowing in self-pity. There was some really, really good sharing. So I have been reading, I finished reading finally Anne Lamott's latest book, which is titled Almost Everything Notes on Hope. And in the chapter that the, the last couple of chapters, I read what she has to say here about empathy. Empathy says, you and I are made of the same lovely, heartbroken, and screwed up stuff. Like, as much as I was angry and resentful and frustrated with my alcoholic loved one, it was when I was able to see her as the same kind of screwed up human that I really was able to feel her suffering and understand that she didn't want to be where she was either. So anyway, that was that was a thought. And then I thought about a person in my family who is immensely frustrating to me right now and who is expressing opinions, expressing thoughts about the way they want to live that I don't agree with, that I don't think are helpful or perhaps healthy. And what this reading says is, you know, I have to give them the dignity of being their person. And I don't say what I think, it, but it hurts. And to understand that, you know, yeah, their, what is, what is her, uh, her phrase, heartbroken, screwed up stuff is the same as my heartbroken, screwed up stuff. It just comes out differently. So it was, um, it was a good meeting for me. Another thing I was thinking about this week is acceptance. A couple of months ago, we had loaned our old car to a friend who, in the process of trying to avoid hitting a pedestrian, totaled the car. And we've been back and forth with the insurance. I mean, they they paid out some, and then they were like, well, we have to wait and see what the police report says to decide whether this was an at-fault accident or not, because if it's a not, not at-fault, we'll waive your deductible. And eventually they said, well, based on the police report, uh, we came to the conclusion that this is at fault. We're not going to waive your deductible. And my feeling is, okay, you know, it is what it is. Um, And my wife has a very different feeling about it, and she wants to contest it. And what I'm not saying, (laughs) because I don't think it would be helpful, is you need to let it go. It happened. It's over. And also this week, oh, my God, uh, acceptance of weather. It's been a, it was a crazy, crazy week for weather and it was not good. I mean, some of it was. So Monday, it was really, really cold, like minus five when I got up, you know, dressed in, in multiple layers with long underwear. It was bright and sunny. So that was cool. And then Wednesday, it got warm and it rained and we ended up with about a quarter inch of ice on everything. And, you know, I can't do anything about the weather. Uh, all I can do is accept that it is what it is and do what is, you know, do what I need to do to deal with it. And for me, that's put the ice cleats on my shoes. And I went to work and a whole bunch of my coworkers didn't because they were accepting they can't get here. One of my coworkers 
said, hey, I walked out of the front door of my apartment building and stepped onto the sidewalk, and it turned into a moving sidewalk because it kind of slants away from the building, and I realized I wasn't going to get back to the building, so I might as well go to work. For him, you know, that was that was just kind of an interesting experience. Another coworker stepped out of the front door of, of her home and slipped and fell and cracked her head on the concrete, probably getting a concussion, and went back to bed. Tried to come to work the next day, had headaches all day, and the next day stayed home. And then today, we got, I don't know, six inches of snow, something like that. But right in the middle of the work, like starting right before the work day, the roads were all screwed up, lots of accidents. And so, again, a whole bunch of people didn't come to work. And in fact, they let us off in the middle of the afternoon and said, go home, be safe. I can't change the weather. All I can do is is do the right thing to keep myself healthy and safe. You know, if I can't do something that I wanted to do because of the weather, then I can't do it. Acceptance. Oh, I'm not sure what we're going to talk about next week, but several people wrote with interesting topic suggestions and hopefully we'll be able to talk about one of them. But if you want to join our conversation, whether it's uh, to respond to the uh, talk by Bob Jr. that I played today, any of our earlier topics, or to suggest a topic, you can call and leave a voicemail at 734-707-8795. You can use the voicemail button on the website to join the conversation directly from your computer or your smartphone. And if you prefer not to use your voice, you can send an email to feedback at therecovery.show. We would love to hear from you. Please share your experience, strength, and hope or your questions. Our website, as you might have guessed, is therecovery.show, which has all the information about the show, notes for each episode, uh, links to usually videos of the music that we talk about, and links to the other things we talk about in each episode. You can find an ep- each episode at therecovery.show slash the episode number. So for this one, therecovery.show slash 277. Second music suggestion comes from V, who writes, Music suggestion, if you're still doing these in 2019, which, yes, we are, as you can tell. Soul Asylum's Runaway Train. I recently rediscovered that album, and man, it's speaking to me again. Here's some lyrics. So tired that I couldn't even sleep. I promised myself I wouldn't weep. One more promise I couldn't keep. It seems no one can help me now. I'm in too deep. There's no way out. Anyway, you may remember it. Thanks again, V. And thank you, V. And again, that, wow, expresses the hopelessness, I think, that I felt before I came into Elanon. Well, the emails have been busy. Maria writes, Spencer, thank you for your podcast. It has saved my life for the past two years. I work almost 60 hours a week and have three young children, so attending meetings is really tough for me. I'm so grateful that God had me search my podcasts and find you. I've listened to all of your episodes and many of them twice. My question is about relapse. I'm doing well now and working my program to the best of my ability. I think a lot about how I would handle a relapse from my husband, who is my qualifier. His repeated relapses are what brought me to Al-Anon, and the better he gets, the more admittedly complacent I get in the program. I'd love to have that push to change my relationship with Al-Anon to be my new way of life, as opposed to my lifeline only when I'm drowning. Any advice you can relate on this would be really helpful. Thanks again for your service, Maria. So relapse, um, I have experienced that, both my own and my loved one. 
did a couple of episodes on relapse back around 79, maybe 78, 79, something like that. And I know I've talked about it in my own story. I, you know, for me, maybe it's because I had several years in the program before my wife found sobriety, but sort of sounds like your story. I went from desperation to, what did you say here? Change my relationship to be my new way of life as opposed to lifeline. Yeah, somehow I picked that up and, and now that's what it is. It is my way of life. I know I've used this analogy so many times, but it's like going to the gym. If I keep going to the gym or if I keep exercising in some way, whether it's, you know, working out at the gym on a treadmill or weights or whatever or taking walks, that helps me to keep my physical health. And similarly, Al-Anon helps me to keep my spiritual health, to keep me being the person that I found myself to be in this program. Because I know that if I stop, I'll go back. I will. I'll relapse. I don't know. Just my thought. Got an email from Jacqueline who writes, Hi, Spencer and Recovery Show team. I have only recently been aware of your podcast, and I'm so happy that I now know about you. The show offers much support and aid when I'm unable to get to a meeting or when my mind begins to spin out of control with worry. I appreciate being able to choose from the different subject matter that speak to my needs at the moment. You mentioned that you're interested in show suggestions with questions, and I have an idea. I would like to hear other stories and thoughts on how to live a financially secure life with a partner who is an alcoholic or recovering alcoholic. I have been married 20 years and five years ago became aware that my husband was a highly functioning alcoholic. When I found this out, and before I joined Al-Anon, I did all of the things I wasn't supposed to do. I yelled at him, tried to make him feel guilty and ashamed, and watched his every move for signs of him drinking or hiding the alcohol. He said terrible things when he was drinking and to some extent blamed me for his drinking. And I blamed myself, as did some of my in-laws. We didn't fight in front of our daughter, but the tension and stress was unbearable. My daughter had said two years ago that this was a toxic environment and she hated being home. It was at that point that I called a divorce lawyer, and after going through the fear and anxiety of wondering how I could be on my own, I found the courage to make the call and I was ready to go through with it. I'm a spiritual person, and the day before my meeting, I prayed and heard back, cancel the appointment. It was not what I wanted to hear. My mind was made up, but I heard it again, cancel the appointment. I canceled it and prayed to my higher power for guidance, as I had no idea what my higher power wanted me to do. The next day I heard it, I needed to learn to love unconditionally. I did not know how to do that, having been brought up in a very controlling household. Love was not shared freely or often. So I began with the help of the Al-Anon program to work the steps and learned how to detach. At first it was with anger, then without emotion, and finally I was able to detach with love, and I learned how to love unconditionally. Not all the time, but now more often than not. My husband found sobriety, and for five months we had the best time of our entire marriage. Then he began drinking again when another change happened in our lives. I was crushed and fell into some of the old behaviors, but not as deeply because I had some knowledge of the Al-Anon tools and meetings to help me through. After three months of him drinking, I set the appointment with the lawyer and met with him. I told him I loved my husband and didn't want a divorce, but could not live with the drinking any longer. So he suggested I serve him papers, but set up a timeline. Tell him there will be a court date in one and a half months. If he's not drinking and is committed to a program and we are getting along, then I could push the date back another two months. The lawyer said I could do this for up to one year. So I was able to sit with my husband and tell him with love, 
no anger, resentment, or expectations that I was serving him divorce papers, but that I loved him and hoped that he would get help. I said this was our last shot at staying married. He did get into a program. It's been a little over a month, and he is getting more involved in service and is looking into possibly becoming a counselor for those with addictions. So we were going in a positive direction. We were selling our house in the spring, and I told him I will not consider buying a house with him until a year passes. I know how this disease is. Some stay sober for the rest of their lives, and others don't, and everything in between. I may have an opportunity to buy my father's home with half the money we would get for selling our house, which would be my portion of the sale. I would only want it in my name. We could live there for our 12-month duration, and I could rent it out if we don't live there. I don't know how to tell him what I'm thinking. I feel guilty for wanting to have the security if things don't work out, and I don't want to derail his positive direction. It is very difficult living with someone and have intimacy, more than physical, who you can't fully trust. Although I'm connected to my higher power and listen, I still sometimes get confused with what is my will and what my higher power wants for me. I would be very grateful to hear what other people have done to secure their finances while still working the program and living with an alcoholic, sober, or active. With appreciation and fellowship, Jacqueline. Wow. Um, thank you for sharing your experience and your strength and, and your hope. And I'm not going to give advice, certainly not, but so much of your experience kind of echoes mine except for the divorce papers part because I never got to that point. But I did worry about finances. I don't know if you have a sponsor that might be a good person to be able to have a conversation about this, but also I see you are you're reaching out to my listeners. And so if you are listening and you have some experience, strength, and hope to share with Jacqueline, let us know. Call and leave a voicemail or send us an email. Thanks. Dear The Recovery Show, I am the wife of an active alcoholic. After 23 years, 15 years married with this man, I am shocked that we have ended up here. It seems to have happened overnight, but I realize that is not the case. It wasn't even obvious to me to label our problem as alcoholism until a friend and colleague, 16 years sober himself, suggested it might be so. I thought we were just going through the same tough times that all couples do after so many years together. It was further suggested to me that I should look into Al-Anon. I began listening to your podcast this past weekend. I started with your pilot episode and have hundreds to catch up on. I then attended my first Al-Anon meeting this week. All tears, no sharing for me. Your show has quickly become a place of solace and encouragement. One week ago, I was devastated for myself, our children, ages 9 and 6, and my husband. I thought I either had to live with our new normal as terrible as it was or end the relationship. Neither option palatable nor motivating. Since finding your podcast and beginning my Al-Anon journey, I am optimistic and learning tools that I can already see making positive changes in our lives. I hope to one day be healthy enough in my recovery to encourage others the way you have encouraged me. While I wouldn't wish this part of my life on anyone, it is awesome to know that I am not alone. God bless, Jessica. Again, that, you know, that's where I was. I didn't see how I could be living in this situation any longer, and I also didn't see how I could leave. My children were 10, 11 when I came into Elanon. Very similar. Thank you for writing. Another listener writes, Spencer, thank you for the Recovery Show podcast. I get excited every time I see the podcast download onto my phone, and your calming voice and logical perspective is like a meditation session. I believe a while ago you asked listeners about coincidences. I don't have a story to share, but I wanted to send my absolute favorite podcast episode since it's all about coincidences. I hope you enjoy the stories as much as I do. 
And this listener sent a link to This American Life, episode 489, which the title is No Coincidence, No Story. And I will put a link in the show notes at therecovery.show slash 277. Matthew left us a voicemail. Hi, my name is uh, Matthew. I was calling to ask about resources or perhaps doing an episode on the effects of a person's sexual behavior on another person. Uh, I have been in Al-Anon for a couple of years and other recovery programs. From my own personal experience, I know that uh, I made poor choices when I was uh, drinking myself, acting out with people sexually, cheating on a partner once. And I, I know from my own personal experience and dealing with other alcoholics that it's very common that even when they get recovery, the addiction goes sideways and they often... Uh, you know, ramps up uh, a sexual addiction. You know, for me, uh, I recently ended a very destructive relationship of uh, 14 months with a person that was in multiple programs, seemed to be working a good program, sponsoring women, but was living a second life and was a, a, a very, very active sex addict with a lot of different partners, very damaging, uh, very traumatic for me to, to, to come to grips with that and the level of deception. And I do uh, attend S-Anon, which is like Al-Anon, but for people that have been affected by other people's sexual addiction. Uh, but there's not a lot of meetings. There's not, not a lot of resources, not a lot of uh, speaker talks or, uh, you know, recovery uh, talks on this particular subject. And I love what you guys do with uh, Al-Anon and using principles. And, you know, I wouldn't really have taken it personally uh, if she had gone back to drinking using drugs, but it's very hard to not take uh, that type of betrayal personally, uh, even though I know logically that she's in an addiction, just like a drug or anything else. But very hard to not take it personally. Very, very difficult to practice detachment and forgiveness. So any type thing that you guys could do or offer on that subject would be uh, of tremendous help. And I do know that a lot of other people in al have been affected by this, but it's considered a lot of times an outside issue, even though it, it happens pretty commonly. So I'd uh, love to hear from you on that. Thanks so much, and God bless. Thank you, Matthew, for calling. Um, you know, I think we had a, a writer a couple of weeks ago who was asking about infidelity in in recovery and how to deal with that. I've had a little bit of correspondence with Matthew, and hopefully we'll be able to bring on uh, a guest or two to talk about their experience as the partner of somebody uh, with a sex addiction. Not a topic that comes up a lot in Al-Anon, but I think a topic that, as Matthew says, a lot of people encounter. Francesca writes, Hi, Spencer and Recovery Show community. I am, as always, extremely grateful to everyone who contributes to the Recovery Show community and grateful to you, Spencer, for starting this all and sticking with it. I'm writing with a topic suggestion, how to use assertiveness in our daily lives. One of the behaviors that no longer serves me in relation to other people is to respond either passively or aggressively. I aim to use assertiveness instead, but it is challenging for me as old habits die hard. I have used passive responses to convince myself that something doesn't really bother me, and therefore I don't need to bring it up and can let someone else make decisions for me. This served me as a child growing up in an alcoholic home. Since the alcoholic's behavior was going to make all the decisions anyway, I might as well pretend I was okay with that. But now I have time in Al-Anon, 
and am familiar with boundaries and with making choices that are right for me. Acting and speaking assertively helps me maintain those boundaries and set expectations with others that match the choices I've made for myself. I have also used aggressive responses to fight back when I feel I'm being controlled against my will. I think this developed as a defense mechanism to keep others at bay, but now responding to a loved one with a combative voice, words, or behavior does not serve me. My old relationship goals were to keep people away at all costs. My new relationship goals are to listen and seek to understand others and to give freely and genuinely of myself to others, even if that means sometimes dealing with disagreements. I would love to hear others experience strength and hope with regard to using assertiveness rather than passivity or aggression in all our affairs. Thank you and Happy New Year, Francesca. Wonderful topic suggestion. If you're listening and you have experienced strength and hope to share on using assertiveness rather than passivity, passivity or aggression, please write or call. Thank you. Natalie writes, Hello. I would really like to reach out and let you know just how much your podcasts have helped me. I first got involved in the Al-Anon program about two and a half years ago when I was going through a particular hard time in my life. The program and the rooms really helped me to get back on my feet and allowed me to take a look at myself and the steps that I needed to take to care for myself. However, I eventually got back together with my qualifier and old habits die hard. Didn't Francesca just talk about that? Yeah. I stopped going to meetings and fell back into my codependent ways. After years of trying, I now found myself in the same situation I was once in. It is hard for me to understand why his actions are what they are and how I could rely so much on him to dictate my own happiness. However, I know now that there is something I can do, and that is to remind myself that Al-Anon works and I need to focus on my own well-being and on not trying to change the situation that I'm in or the person. I have since started going back to meetings, and they have been helping me sort out my thoughts and once again turn myself over to my higher power and open up to the idea that I can't do this alone. It has been difficult for me on a daily basis, and between meetings, I find myself turning to your podcasts when I'm feeling anxious and like life is too much. I cannot express how thankful I am for the program and for all that you do. Listening to your podcast helped me to bring my mind back and give me the faith to know that eventually I will get through this. I really like what you said about the slogan, it works if you work it, by instead knowing that it works if you let it. And I just want to say, I'm sure I was quoting somebody else when I said that, but it's still good. I have been struggling with letting go, but this helped me to see that I need to not force it, but to take a step back and simply allow it to happen. I know that I am doing what I need to heal, and I need to take it one day at a time. Thank you for all that you do and for letting me hear what I need to hear. Natalie. Thanks, Natalie. And yeah, I mean, I know I have to work it, but I also have to let it. I can't force it, but I also, you know, can't do nothing. That's my experience. A couple of reviews on iTunes this month. One titled A Meeting in My Car by Kathy from the USA. I'm so pleased that I came upon this recovery podcast. It is a great tool that has been added to my armory. The topics are meaningful and the guests are interesting and add texture to the discussion. The podcast has become my new in my car meeting. Thank you, Spencer. And thank you, Kathy. And Lolof wrote, always there to help. I've been enjoying this podcast so much. I listen to it sometimes when going to sleep to relax me or listening in the early hours of the morning. I've been in and out of Al-Anon for over 30 years. I found over the years I was codependent and I had my own issues and needed to work the 12 steps myself. I can't always head to a meeting and listen to this podcast has really helped me so much. I recommend it for anyone. It's to help work on yourself. And thank you for those. And iTunes reviews 
you know, help people who are looking for a podcast decide maybe they want to give us a try. So I always appreciate them. Thank you. It doesn't cost you anything to listen to The Recovery Show, but we do have expenses. You can help to support us and keep us on the web and in your ear. We have a donation button on the website where you can support us directly, just like Catherine and Amelia did. And thank you again, Catherine and Amelia. We have a list of recovery-related books. Click or tap on the books link in the menu at the top of the page. If you order one of these books from Amazon through our website, we will receive a small commission. It costs you nothing extra and helps to keep us on the air. Thank you for your support in whatever form you give it. Whether it's sharing the podcast with your friends, simply direct them to therecovery.show or just listening to us. We are here for you. Claire sent a suggestion for the third song in this episode. She writes, Hello, I listen to your show quite a bit. I love having access to the program, especially on weeks like this one, where I'm just too busy to get to a meeting. I have been recording music with my band this week, and we have been referencing several of our influences for this record. And since I know you include lyrics from songs that you feel apply to the recovery topic that you discuss on your episodes, I wanted to share this particular one with you. It's a pop staple song, and I thought you might enjoy the music as well as the message. For me, especially in this turbulent time, my relationship with my higher power is the only thing getting me through the day today. And now that I have the program and my higher power, I definitely feel many times that somebody was watching over me and that my bad time is better than my good time used to be. I hope you're having a great week and want to thank you again for making space in your life to share your experience, strength, and hope with those of us who need it. Your program was the first step I took in my recovery process. It saved my life. And thank you so much for writing, Claire. The song is by Pop Staples titled Somebody Was Watching. I've been shot up and shipped down. I've been turned away and turned round. Nobody to call my own in this mean old world alone. Many nights I cried. Somebody was all the time down in my soul I knew. Some way I'd get through. Looking back now I see somebody was watching over me. Thank you for listening and please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. We did not talk about a problem you are facing today. Feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. Understanding love and peace growing you one day at a time.